Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? So I'm Daniel, and I'm honored that Tim invited me to speak this morning. Um, it's actually good, been a good reminder to me of how blessed we are as a church to have Tim and Mike who faithfully um, prepare messages and teach from the Word every week. And weeks like this, where someone else teaches, don't mean vacation time for them. There's still a lot to do. And it, it's worth having someone else teach as well. There's the additional responsibility of making sure that if I say something stupid, then they're going to have to come up here and correct it. <laughs> anyway, um, I have the privilege of continuing this series through the book of John as we enter, uh, is this the second decade, third decade? It's, it's been a while, right? Uh, I was actually curious how long it's really been, and the answer, I think, is best shown with a visual aid. So allow me to show you Exhibit A, my son Levi, when Tim started teaching the book of John. So he was only two months old in this picture, and I still can't handle the, uh, the cutes. So um, now exhibit B, a year and a half later, he's quite a different kid, as you can see, and, and woohoo, we're just about halfway through John, right? <laughs> so I'll be honest, this was totally just my excuse to get to show two cute Levi pictures as a dad, but um, since Tim gave me 20 verses to cover today, we probably better get started. So today I want to talk about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. I know it's probably a huge shock for you based on the passage uh, Scott just read, uh, based on the songs we just sang, and based on the fact he walked into a church ser service, that, that people want to talk about Jesus. Now hopefully that's the case in every church every week, and the thing is though, that most of us in the room wouldn't have identical answers to the question, what can you tell me about Jesus? I mean, we've all had different experiences, we have different emphases, and we'd probably all respond at least a little bit differently. Now let me show you a quote by A.W. Tozer, a theologian. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now when I first encountered the quote, I, I glossed over it. The more people I interact with though, the more I think there's a lot of truth in there because a shorter way of saying what we think about God is the term theology. And theology matters. It affects how we live, what we believe about ourselves, our purpose, our goals. It affects our relationships with our spouse, our families, um, at work, with everyone. And so even if you're a committed atheist or an agnostic humanist, it's your theology about God, or lack thereof, that impacts how you spend your time, what causes you'll give money to, and how you live. So what defines us as Christians is what we believe about Jesus. And how we speak about Jesus is actually a great window into our beliefs and into our theology. How we react to Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, matters. So let me start by praying, and then we'll jump into John 10. Father, thank you for this morning. Thanks for your word. And I just pray that this morning your voice would be clearer than mine as we, we look at John 10 and what Jesus said. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Tim and Mike taught on the first half of the, of the chapter over the last two weeks, Jesus has been teaching with a sheep metaphor. I'm a sheep. He's the good shepherd. Okay. So let's pick it up at verse 22. And just a quick note, I'm going to mostly be reading from the ESV translation. So if it doesn't exactly match with the uh, wording of the pew Bibles, that's why. Verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
So fun fact, the Feast of Dedication mentioned here is what's known today as Hanukkah. Now, I'm not a historian, and I didn't grow up Jewish, so most of what I know I've actually learned from Wikipedia. It's, it's not a bad way to get an overview, but if you're really interested in, in learning more, the best way would probably be to ask a friend of yours who celebrates it. Uh, I'm only going to really jump into the uh, historical aspects right now. So in 175 BC, Alexander the Great's Macedonian Empire had split after he conquered much of the area. And the local power in the area was the Seleucid Empire at the time. So in 175 BC, the Seleucid ruler outlaws Jewish practices. And then eight years later, a Jewish revolt begins. It was called the Maccabean Revolt after a guy called Judas or Judah Maccabee. Now, his dad started the revolt with him and his brothers. And it was kind of a family thing because he, they all fought alongside each other. Now, when Judas's dad died only about a year into the revolt, he became the leader because he was a good leader and a good, really good at fighting, too. Now, there's actually two possible names or reasons for the Maccabee name. One is that Maccabee comes from Aramaic meaning the hammer, right, because he was such a good warrior. And you've got to admit that's just, you know, an awesome nickname as they go, right? Uh, another option is that it's a shortened reference to a verse from Exodus that was their battle cry, Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? See, they were fighting in the name of God. And after three years, the rebellion successfully defeated a superior force in Jerusalem and restored the ability to worship in the temple, which is why Hanukkah is celebrated. Now, the rebellion went on for more years after that, and Judah ended up getting killed in battle. Now, most, most of us probably don't celebrate Hanukkah, so let me give you a less historical analogy folks might be more familiar with. Quick show of hands. Who thinks Die Hard is a Christmas movie? That, that few? Okay, who's seen Die Hard? Come on. Wow, that's, that's, I'm revealing my age, I guess, or something. So um, for the four people who said, yeah, it's a Christmas movie, you're right, and everyone else is wrong. Um, <laughs> I don't want to really spoil the 31-year-old movie, but Bruce Willis, uh, he wants that hair, like, you know, as you can see, and he plays this cop named John McClane. Now, McClane, he spends the movie single-handedly saving the day from 12 terrorists who show up uninvited to a work Christmas party, including the arch-bad guy, Alan Rickman, and that's Professor Snape for, you know, the Harry Potter fans in the room. So my point here is that Judah Maccabee is basically a historical McClane. Only he wasn't fictional, and he zealously fought a, a years-long rebellion to restore the freedom of the Jews to worship in the name of God, of the God of Israel. Pretty cool, right? So to put time in perspective here, too, this is only about 200 years before the events in John 10. Now that we're excited about the Feast of Dedication, let's go on to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, if we're not paying close enough attention to the question, we're going to have a hard time following the rest of the exchange. If you are the Christ, what, is, what does that exactly mean? It's obviously not Jesus' last name. The word used here is Christos. As literally as possible, they're asking if Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one spoken of by the prophets. Now, given that it's the Feast of Dedication, you know, some of these folks have got to be asking, are you the next hammer? Are you the anointed one from God? who's going to lead us like Maccabee? Are you going to be like Moses, who God sent us to, to save us from slavery in Egypt? Are you going to confront Caesar like Moses confronted Pharaoh? 
I mean, it's very possible they're looking for a man of God to follow in restoring Israel's place out from under Roman rule. So if Jesus replied right here, yeah, I'm the Christ, I don't know, maybe the whole passage would have been a lot less confrontational. And at first glance, it, it looks like they're asking a very simple yes or no question. Are, are you the Christ or not? So, um, quick question. This is a smartphone. What's it for? What's it do? Everything wasted. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the better question really is, like, what doesn't it do? Because there's an app for basically everything, like you said. So I think the problem here is that when these folks say, hey, if you're the Christ, based on their understanding of the anointed one, they say, you're the Christ, tell us plainly. What they're really doing is like looking at a, some, a smartphone in someone's hand and asking, hey, listen, dude, stop playing games and just tell me plainly, is that a flashlight or not? Sure, it, it has a flashlight. Except, no, you're completely misunderstanding the power and the purpose of the device I'm holding. So let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered them in verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Well, what works has Jesus done that bear witness about him? Let's see. John's told us about a few miraculous signs so far. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. He healed a man's deathly ill son. He forgave a man's sins and then restored that man's ability to walk. He fed over 5,000 people. He walked on water. And he opened the eyes of a blind man in the last chapter, just to name a few. And he also did a few works that didn't seem so miraculous, things like driving money changers out of a temp the temple and offering living water to an outcast Samaritan woman. Now, notice anything missing from this resume? Not once has he taken up arms against Rome. And spoiler alert for those who read ahead, Jesus lays down his life on a Roman cross and then takes it up again by rising from the dead. So it's also really important to notice that the reason Jesus says here they don't believe is because they're not his sheep. He doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you won't follow me. It's the other way around. Jesus' sheep follow him because they're already his and listening to his voice. Now look at how Jesus continues. 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them, them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the people ask Jesus if he's the anointed one from God, and in the midst of the response, we find one of the most amazing theological statements. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hold on a second. They're asking if Jesus is a man sent from God, but how can he promise eternal life and eternal control unless he's an eternal shepherd? And Jesus says his sheep are in his hand, but then that no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's, it's almost as if he's claiming in verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to, to stone him. All right, so there it is. Now Jesus has really done it. Regardless of your theological background, one thing is sure here. The people Jesus was talking to saw this as a direct claim to be God. These Jews heard Jesus' claim to be one and the same with the Lord, the living God of Israel. And they've certainly heard enough. That's, that's why they pick up stones. So the first question we have to ask is, were the Jews correct in what they heard? Is Jesus really claiming to be divine? The short answer, yes. Yes, Jesus very much is claiming to be God. 
He's not just claiming to be one in purpose. First, that's definitely not what they heard. But more abstractly, God's ways are so much higher than man's. A mere man can't be one in purpose with God any more than an ant could be one in purpose with someone negotiating Brexit. Right? They'd have to have the same nature, the same capacity for understanding. We're never going to fully understand the mind of God, even though we can learn, listen, and follow. But Jesus, Jesus here is claiming to be one with God. The physical human in front of them is claiming to be both eternal and divine. Now, it's important when we talk about such critical theological tenets that we don't just rely on a single verse. Because God reveals his character to us consistently. And things that are really important tend to be repeated and confirmed in multiple places in Scripture. Jesus really does claim to be God. See, two verses ago, Jesus claimed to be able to grant and sustain eternal life. Two chapters ago, Jesus says in John 8:58 that before Abraham was, I am. Back in chapter 5, John says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of God, the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Luke 18, 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And yet, earlier in the chapter, in John 10 here, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Satan tempts Jesus in Matthew 4, 9. He says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Yet in John 9, Jesus accepts worship from the man who was born blind. And after walking on water and calming the wind in Matthew 14, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Or Luke 5.20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. So there's a popular idea these days that Jesus was a good teacher who never claimed to be God, and it was only an idea added hundreds of years afterwards to Christian creeds. To say it nicely, that's quite a conspiracy theory, one that's incredibly hard to support in light of these first century accounts. Jesus repeatedly claims to be God, and it's one of the charges that led to him being nailed to a cross. So the question we really have to deal with is, okay, he said it, do we believe him? Do we believe the amazing claim that an infinite God became a single man in time and space, that he walked among us? It's hard to grasp that Jesus could be both fully God and fully man, and in our efforts to understand, to rationalize and explain what this means, the danger is that it's easy to minimize Jesus. And if we do that, we miss the gospel for a different faith entirely. See, when Jesus talks about his sheep and says, I and the Father are one, I think we tend to respond in one of three ways, either as a, a skeptic, a spiritualist, or a sinner. A skeptic responds with, Jesus wasn't God. And notice the tense. Do we talk about Jesus with past or present tense? Do we really believe he's risen and that he's alive? There are a ton of possible reasons to say Jesus wasn't God. 
I mean, maybe it's because you believe there is no God or that God is dead or Jesus is dead. Maybe it's because God can't be known or you can't prove it to me or a good God would never allow this. Or maybe it's because Jesus was a good man, a moral teacher, maybe a prophet. Or maybe he was an irrelevant, crazy person. Or maybe we just hear him and say, I am the father, hear him say, I am the father are one, and we dismiss it instantly as that's impossible. For the people in the passage, their eyes told them that the 30-something man in front of them couldn't be the eternal God, the I am. It was ridiculous to consider that a man could be the incarnation of the almighty, holy God. And so, as skeptics, full of righteous anger, they picked up stones. Verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, blasphemy isn't a common term, and we're dealing with a bit of a cultural divide here. One of our society's highest values is free speech. So we look at this and go, why is this turning violent? Like, well, first of all, what's blasphemy? Well, the Merriam-Webster definition is the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God, or the act of claiming the attributes of a deity. Now, I honestly kind of prefer the crowd's definition. Literally, you, a man, make yourself God. Now, why is this such a big deal? Even if they think Jesus is crazy or maybe even evil and insulting God, why don't they just ignore him? I mean, it's free speech. Who's he hurting? Well, we're so far removed from understanding what it means to profane something sacred that it's hard for us to see the gravity of what Jesus said. I mean, one example in our modern day might be that you know not to joke about weapons when you're getting on an airplane. Free speech, one of our highest values, suddenly doesn't matter anymore when you're joking about terrorism or the safety of 150 people. But there are a ton of other cultural differences. I mean, we value individual liberty as much as possible over enforced morality. Adultery is still immoral, but it's now a destructive life choice rather than a capital crime. It's, it's still no small sin of pride and presumption to claim to be the eternal, immortal God. But, I mean, let's face it, it's not really hurting anyone else for you to tweet, I am God all day in caps. I mean, that's not allowed everywhere on the planet. But, and when you say something false, insulting, or controversial, there's still going to be consequences. Levitical law, though, recognize blasphemy as one of the highest forms of rebellion, with the punishment equally harsh, stoning. It's a form of fraud and identity theft. It's one thing to try to impersonate your boss and take his authority. It's a whole thing on a different level to attempt identity theft of the holiest name of God, the one spoken from a burning bush. I mean, the name of God commanded respect and obedience. It was the reputation the Israelites listened to and the authority by which Pharaoh was to cease and desist. See, in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So that's why in Leviticus 24.16, the law is that whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So props to the crowd here for paying attention to the law. The problem is that the people went immediately to pronouncing a guilty verdict against Jesus. And this isn't some rando claiming to be God, right? Jesus' reputation is the whole reason they're asking him if he's the Christ in the first place. 
So, I mean, they were waiting for God's anointed one, but they never considered that Jesus might be more than they were expecting. They weren't expecting the word who was from the beginning with God, was God, and is God. They didn't hear the shepherd's voice, and they didn't check his long list of miraculous references before rendering their verdict. See, the tragic irony is this. They accused Jesus of being a man who made himself God. But Jesus is revealing that he's God who made himself man. And so they picked up stones. They pronounced judgment on Jesus. Isn't it easy for you and me to look at God and do the same? So Jesus' response here seems maybe a little bit sarcastic. For which of these good works are you going to stone me? But it's a remarkably calm response to a crowd that's actively preparing to kill him. I mean, Jesus confronts their reality with grace and truth. Because when you put his words and his works together, they reveal who he really is. And if we'll stop and consider them, our works and our words reveal who we really are too. Now, the, the folks responded as skeptics. I and the Father are one. Nope, impossible. And it'd be easy to judge them as, as rigid and closed-minded, but that would only reveal our own pride, thinking we'd do any better. So how's Jesus respond to being judged a blasphemer? In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the, into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, I'll be honest, this is a confusing yet amazing question. In one fell swoop, Jesus answers their original question that, yes, indeed, he is the anointed one, consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. Notice also that he restates, I and the Father are one, as I am the Son of God. But what's his blasphemy defense? Is he quoting Psalm 82 as theological grounds to say, my statement's no big deal? I mean, we're all sons and daughters of, of God, right? Maybe everyone's just overreacting because claiming to be one with God isn't such a big deal. Well, that's the second way to respond to Jesus here, with a spiritualist mindset, to say that by nature Jesus isn't that different from us, to say that there's, there's God within all of us when we do good deeds, to say Jesus was the best of us, the source of our faith tradition and our sacrificial example. It's saying that claiming to be one with God is something we can all do as we grow in knowledge and good works. This isn't the new theology but it's also not Christian. See, in the first century, this might have been called a form of Gnosticism. It's based on the belief that our core problem isn't sin against God, but it's a lack of understanding God within all of us. It says the solution is internal to us, not external, that life comes through knowledge and not by grace. It's a theology that says Jesus was a good teacher who showed us how to love others sacrificially, that he helped us find a divinity we'd forgotten. The skeptic response was to dismiss him as crazy or irrelevant, and back in verse 20, many of them said, he's a demon, and insane, why listen to him? But the spiritualist response is to regard Jesus as a stepping stone to deeping, deeper understanding. And the problem with both of these responses is that they minimize Jesus. If we ignore Jesus or look behind, or beyond him, we miss the point of the entire Bible. It, it's not a book of morality or good examples of people to follow. Jesus is the hero, not us. God is the point of the story, not man. And every page points to the preeminence of Jesus, the glory of God, and the work of his spirit. Look with me at Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or how about Hebrews 1? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him, whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Or John 5. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or Philippians 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him, has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, these passages don't point us away from Jesus, they point us straight at him. Jesus' name, his reputation, is above all others. Jesus will inherit all things. Jesus is extraordinary, and we're not. Jesus claims to be God, and it's an extraordinary claim that only he can make. So the Bible makes it clear, if we marginalize Jesus, we miss the gospel for a different faith entirely. And these are just four summaries of the, the good news, that Jesus paid for our sins, that he rose from the dead in victory, and he gets the honor and the power. So some approach his word as skeptics and say, Jesus wasn't God. That's crazy. Some approach as spiritualists and say, Jesus was God, and we are too, if we love like him. But for those of us who approach, us as, approach him as sinners, Jesus is God, is, whose resurrection isn't an example or a metaphor, it's the reason for our hope. See, at the beginning of this incident, the people said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They wanted a heroic leader to follow, someone to cheer on. They wanted to be soldiers, not sheep. Jesus offers far more than they asked for. He promises eternal life and protection for his sheep, a promise that's, that's only possible if he's God. And it's a unique claim. No one else can claim to be the fullness of God's skin. So why is his blasphemy defense quoting, I said you are God's from a psalm? Well, I think there are a few reasons. One is that he's giving them another opportunity to realize that they don't understand everything, and neither do we. And just because they thought they understood the anointed one prophecies doesn't mean they did. It's a confusing reference to toss at a group of who just judged him guilty of blasphemy with such speed and such certainty. He gives them a tough one that'll make them pause, an opportunity to think this one through. But to see another reason, turn with me to Psalm 82. I, I want to quickly read the whole thing um, because the Jews might have known it from the Jesus quote. Psalm 82 God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So here God is the one bringing the hammer down on corrupt judges. Jesus quotes from verse 6, but, but look again at verse 7 and 8. I don't think Jesus is defending himself from the charge of blasphemy. Why does he need to? Who is it again that will be inheriting the nations and judging the earth? I think Jesus is pointing out that the scriptures wrote of his coming. And he's pointing out that by picking up stones to kill him, the people around him, being men, have made themselves gods. Does this remind you of any, anything? They've actually just judged God himself. They've just committed blasphemy, the very offense that they're going to kill him for. And this is really bad news, because let's be honest, I bet we're all guilty of blasphemy at one time or another. We've all, though human, tried to make ourselves God. I know I've pronounced judgment on God. How could you do this, God? Why is this so unfair? I failed to recognize his glory in creation, and there are so many times that I rely on myself. I've, I've ignored him completely because I thought I could handle it, even this week. It's blasphemy, pride of the highest order to assume that I can pronounce judgment on God or claim that I don't need God or claim that I can be like God. Just read the last few chapters of Job. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? But now for the good news. Jesus gives us a wonderful invitation in here. Repent. It's a chance to stop wandering off and listen to his voice instead. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, Jesus points us to his works as proof of his identity. And he gives the ones holding stones, that's us, another chance to put them down. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. See, they knew about the man born blind and many of his other signs, but we know about Jesus' most famous sign of all, his resurrection. Do we really believe? Do we really trust that Jesus is more than enough? Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in, in him there. Notice the huge difference across the Jordan. Many believed in him. Remember what John the Baptist taught? Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John taught about repentance because his goal was to open their eyes to the fact that they're sheep. I'm a sheep. They've wandered away from God, and they need to repent to turn to him. You see, John helped point out that what people need isn't a revolutionary leader like Maccabee. They don't need a good teacher or an example of self-sacrifice. They need a good shepherd, one who knows them by name, who lays down his life for the sheep and then takes it up again in glory. To look back to the, the middle of this encounter where Jesus gives them an amazing promise. It's a promise that depends only on him and not on us. And if Jesus claims, is who he claims to be, 
then he's the eternal good shepherd who says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So what's your response? Are you, am I a sinner? What do we say about Jesus? What does his voice sound like? Do we change direction when we hear him? This week we have the opportunity to listen, to repent, and follow Jesus. He's the good shepherd, the one and only Christ, fully God, fully man, and he's alive. So let's stop acting like we're more than sheep and that he's less than God. Look at his works, listen to his voice, and believe that Jesus and the Father are one. Let me pray. God, I just, I pray this morning that you would reveal to us where we make ourselves God, where we ignore you, where we choose our own ways and not yours. God, help us to be sheep. 